0: For a fleeting second, you may have heard that there was a financial collapse and a subsequent uprising in the small island nation of Sri Lanka. But do you know what really happened? So join me, Desh, a storyteller and a member of the Sri Lankan diaspora in my quest to find answers to the question, what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? Welcome to the third installment of what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? In our previous episode, we explored Sri Lanka's long-standing war that stretched out civil conflict to almost three decades. Now, in this episode, we want to look into the other buzzword that has been associated with the island nation, the economy. In May 2022, Sri Lanka defaulted on its debt for the first time in its history with a total outstanding debt of 51 billion U.S. dollars It was the worst economic crisis the country would see in seven decades. This meant that the government no longer had foreign reserves to be able to pay off its loans. But the problem didn't stop there. A shortage of foreign currency meant that the country did not have the resources to purchase essentials such as fuel, which not only powered vehicles, but also is the main source of electricity in the country. This affected medicine and food. Mile-long fuel queues, hours without electricity and empty shelves have been a common sight for Sri Lanka's population of 22 million people. I talked to Member of Parliament Dr. Harani Amarasouria, Defence Analyst Asif Fuad, Journalist Marlan Aryan Researcher Sarla Emanuel, political commentator and advisor, Eranda Ginigay, former human rights commissioner, Ambika Satkunanathan, to find out how did one of Asia's fastest growing economies end up here?
1: I think that the country was pushed beyond limits. And let me put it this way, a crisis that was in the making for years finally erupted in the last two and a half years. There were specific reasons for that, specific uh, decisions that this government toppled the country over the edge for sure. But this is not something that is surprising. It is a complex problem and there's no really one cause or one perpetrator. But if you look at especially the last two years, right? There were decisions that were taken by the current government and the ex-president Gautabe Rajapaksha, which exacerbated the situation. This economic crisis has been brewing for some time. There were so many experts and economists who uh, who predicted this, who advised the government to change its course, to be more prudent with fiscal decisions. But their pleas basically went unheeded.
2: Many analysts and pundits in economy say that it's mismanagement of the economy and uh, they would even say it's related to uh, a large public sector. And then uh, some would say that it is the granting of or obtaining of uh, foreign loans from uh, China and several other countries, we rarely see those who have been involved in large-scale corruption activities being prosecuted or being uh, held accountable for these uh, actions. So even though many would say that it is uh, poor economic policies, I would disagree it's mainly related to corruption because successive Um, regimes from Mahindra Rajapaksa's regime to the Yaha regime. To even Gotabe's regime, there was large scale corruption that was happening. But my honest opinion and the analysis of many is that corruption is the key reason for the current uh, social and political upheavals that we faced over the last couple of months. So we saw Gotabe Rajapaksa was forced to resign.
0: But to understand Sri Lanka's economic crisis for what it is today, it is important we look back at the past with its creditors and investors. I talked to researcher Sarla Emanuel about the sovereign bond investment. This was when Sri Lanka would invest in its first international sovereign bond in 2007. Just before, in 2008, the global financial crisis crippled the entire world's economic systems. In 2015, Sri Lanka struggled with its largest reported financial scam, causing a loss over 11 million US dollars. It was called the bond scam. What was the bond scam? Arjuna Mahindran, was elected as the governor of the Central Bank in 2015. His son-in-law, Arjun Aloysius worked in the perpetual treasuries, which were the primary dealers involved in the scam. In 2020, the former governor of the Central Bank Sri Lanka, Ajit Naval Kabral, would point to the current president, Ranil Vikramsinger, as the brainchild behind the operation. In 2022, Sri Lanka was supposed to pay out about $7 billion in interest and debt repayment but has less than $3 billion in its reserve. I asked Sarala for more.
3: Sri Lanka has been in a kind of loans, credit, debt. Based economy since the late seventies, right? I think this current negotiation with with the IMF is a seventeen kind of agreement. So we have a history of this being kind of the way how the Sri Lankan economy has functioned. But I think investing open investing in kind of global financial markets through international sovereign bonds like started in two thousand seven. So the oldest one from what information we could gather was in. 2007. And then it it now is 47% of our debt is from market borrowings, right? It is not China. It is not Japan. It is not the World Bank. It is not India. It is market borrowings. So it kind of increased exponentially from what we have gathered, the kind of money that that came in also went to kind of service other debt. It never kind of generated or uh, it didn't generate or was invested to create income or even foreign remittances. It was just like servicing whole debt cycle of the country. So that's what I can say about that. And, and this came up, I think, if I am not mistaken, in 2015, it was called the bond scam. The head of the central bank then, who was appointed by the current president, uh, Arjuna Mahindran, ha- had legal cases against him for kind of completely misusing funds of the central bank. So there is a history of, of this kind of playing in this global markets through uh, issues issue Bonds and and there are obviously people in Sri Lanka also who are making huge profits out of that. And then there's the whole lack of accountability of these uh, huge kind of companies conglomerates who have been uh, kind of the other other side of the bonds right those who have been investing in the bonds and from what we found out blackrock is one of the biggest kind of investors who are holding sri lankans bonds now or we are we have to repay ashmore alliance hsbc jp morgan chase so like they're like big multinational financial companies right and i don't know how a small country like sri lanka is going to be able to negotiate any kind of fair deal with such. Uh, they're not countries, you know, it's not going to be a bilateral government-to-government agreement. They're huge kind of faceless, nameless companies. So that, that's one of the reasons why we are here where we are. And Sri Lanka, uh, mind you, is not alone in this. I think globally there is this trend. Many countries are in debt-related financial crisis.
0: Sarala brings to light how Sri Lanka owes much of its debt to the market borrowings, not to other countries or creditors. The Chinese debt trap is a phenomenon that describes the relationship between China and who it lends to, akin to a predator and its prey. The common myth behind China's relationship with its lenders would go something like this. China would lend money to a local government for a project. And when the government is unable to pay that loan back, China would grab the said project into their full control. For Sri Lanka, an example of this would be the Hambantota port, which was funded entirely by the Chinese government. But this never really happened. Sri Lanka still owns 30% of the port's shares and still remains a co-owner. Negotiations with the Chinese government for debt restructuring are very much on the table. It is also important to note that the relationship between Sri Lanka and China isn't relatively new. In 1952, China and then Ceylon would sign the Sino-Lanka Rubber Rice Pact. Sri Lanka would face a foreign exchange crisis and the world market for rice had increased by 38%. The trade agreement was then signed in 1952 for five years. Sri Lanka would buy... 270,000 tons of rice and China would buy the equivalent in rubber. Since then, the ties between Sri Lanka and China have only strengthened from the development of fame buildings to hospital equipment. The amount of loans funded by China has shot high with a significant increase since 2005. It isn't clear how much Sri Lanka owes to China. Official data from Sri Lanka's financial ministry tells us China accounts for only about 10% of the country's 35.1 billion of its external debt as of April 2021. I spoke with Melinda Rajapaksha, who worked as a spokesperson for Gotabia Rajapaksha. Yes, that's Gotabaya Rajapaksha. In 2018, we spoke about Sri Lanka's relationship with the IMF, its ties to China and its relationship with India.
4: We never made the decision not to go to IMF. My first meeting with IMF in my diary, in my recordings, I met the, the, the regional director, who is a Korean gentleman, who retired, uh, who uh, came to Sri Lanka to meet the finance minister end of last year. So we had we have had a series of meetings with the IMF. Uh, we met the ADB president in 10th of March this year. So we, we met uh, all the big international donors or the banks, including IMF, we met everyone. We met everyone. We, 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 we as the government, as the finance ministry, we were in negotiation and discussion with all the uh, big partners. But before finalizing the IMF deal or before rolling out IMF deal, we wanted to find all the other alternatives before uh, making IMF deal. Today, We have forgotten everything and we are only going after IMF. Still, IMF is not giving us the loan. And that is also a loan. It is not uh, any relief package. IMF package is not uh, a donation. It is a big loan. But uh, there were many other bilateral uh, partners who could help us. So that was our priority. You know, there are certain reforms. We can't do uh, the way IMF wants. Even today, we can't do. Even this government, this president can't do those reforms the IMF, the way IMF wants. So we knew that very well. So we wanted to uh, uh, find another solution. I stand by that. I mean, even today, I stand by that. Tell me uh, one country which has solved all their problems uh, only with IMF uh, support. No one in the world, no one. So you need your own people to solve your problem. Even in India, there are case studies. India, 1991, they went to IMA. But what solved their problem is not IMA. The other local solutions, uh, Manamohan Singh and the government came out at that time. You know, that's the the most recent uh, story we can find in our region. Yeah, so I think we were in the right path. Same time, we were in the... From the other side, we were discussing with IMF, actually. April 2nd week, our meeting with World Bank and the IMF officials were cancelled because uh, first week of uh, April, the protesters attacked uh, President House uh, and the government, uh, the ministers decided to uh, resign from their positions. So, finance minister couldn't go to Washington. Uh, Still in my computer, in my emails, I have the finalized, approved uh, agenda between uh, the finance minister and the Sri Lankan ambassador in Washington, uh, His Excellency Mahinda Samarasinha, with the uh, president of World Bank and the senior staff members of IMF. That is the first day. And the second day with the officials of the treasury. Yeah, we were doing everything possible. So 5 billion were guaranteed by India. We had received 2.5 billion by then. At the moment, this country is running from Rest of the two and a half billion given by India at the moment, most of the things are coming from that credit line. That is why we are still surviving. No one else has given a single dollar, single rupee, you know, we must be very thankful to India. And the other two billion was approved by China. That is the day our ambassador in China, Dr. Palita Kuhana, announced it from Beijing, saying that the other two billion is approved from Beijing. And as soon as the government resigned, Beijing took it back so we never got that 2 billion we never received that 2 billion and today we are struggling with all these dramas for what 2.9 billion from the imf that's that's also going to be delivered over a long period of time step by step but that 2 billion was in our hand from china
0: sri lanka is facing the worst economic crisis in over 70 years according to the country's central bank It reported that prices of fresh fruit, wheat and eggs nearly doubled, causing inflation to reach a shocking 70% last September. Additionally, the cost of transport and essentials like electricity and water shot up even faster. Last year, Sri Lanka's economy contracted by 7.8% and the country couldn't pay its foreign debt for the first time since gaining independence from the UK in 1948. What's more... Sri Lanka owes about $7 billion to China and around $1 billion to India. Both countries agreed to restructure the loans, giving Sri Lanka more time to repay them. And to help address the economic crisis, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, approved a $3 billion loan to Sri Lanka on March 20, 2023. The Central Bank of Sri Lanka predicts that the economy will shrink further 2% this year, but expand by 3.3% in 2024. There are claims about the economy slowly stabilizing since the chaos of 2022, but with so many factors at play in governance, only time will tell. In 2019, the Gotabi Rajapaksha administration introduced tax cuts to the entire country by adding a value-added tax of 8 to 15%. Then the pandemic hit, making it impossible to make up for the losses in revenue. To add insult to injury, the Gotabe administration also imposed a chemical fertilizer ban across the island in an attempt to drive organic agriculture. The ban done overnight, unsurprisingly, garnered outrage and anger from experts, environmentalists, and farmers alike. I grew up in Sri Lanka for the first 19 years of my life, coming from a family of farmers who grew their own patties and sustained their lives. In a way, I'd grown accustomed to believing every family would grow their own crops, like ours, from our own rice to our own veggies. I have fond memories of pulling potatoes from the ground, watering rice paddies. So I was surprised when I found out Sri Lanka reduced investments in its agriculture and turned to imports instead. In an earlier episode, I mentioned one of my farming relatives, an uncle of mine who said they bled blue. Almost all of my family who were farmers voted for the Rajapakshas. But after the pesticide ban, which affected them directly they had a different tune. They were completely caught off guard. Their livelihoods were at stake and one of my uncles told me every time he turns the ground to plant a seed he wishes nothing but a painful death to the Rajapakshas. This was quite shocking as most of my family were pretty much pacifists. I talked to Sarla about her work to understand how the ban affected Sri Lankan farmers and the economy.
3: We have such a strong imaginary connection, roots to agriculture. I think whichever community you're from, land, agriculture, water, it's your imagined connection to the soil, right? If you are not in the capital city and you grew up somewhere else, that is part of your story of who you are. And it's the same for where I am in Vaticolo, People are very closely, intimately connected with land and also with the lagoons and the fish and, you know, uh, livelihoods, culture, songs, histories, histories of the war, everything is connected to that. So it's a very important part of who we are. And I think, of course, we do produce some amount of, we have an agriculture economy as well, but it's very small if you look at the GDP. I can't remember the exact percentage now, but it's quite small compared to what it was was in the 50s and 60s. And the kind of agriculture we have also has been moving to cash crops, export crops, gherkins, various other kind of dole banana, sugar cane. And it's not the priority, it's not nutritious food production for domestic markets right and we also started exploring and in like investigating and trying to find out what is happening with agriculture when the covid lockdowns happen and then also slowly with the economic crisis right and we realized that a lot of kind of basic food is imported or even if it's made locally there's a part of it which is imported, like even egg, something connected to the egg industry, something that is essential for the egg industry comes from outside. Even agriculture, all the fertilizer, pesticides comes from outside, right? And the seeds themselves, they are all GM seeds. So uh, you have to buy it from big multinational companies. So whatever is there is also in that chain of agriculture production is very connected to global markets. So you can't just disconnect and grow your own food overnight exactly what happened when the ban on fertilizer was declared overnight right because two harvests have got uh, affected and reduced drastically because of lack of fertilizer Uh, it also affected tea as well don't get me wrong theoretically i think we should the whole world should be moving towards a non-chemical fertilizer based food production for our own bodies, for our own future. So I am I, I strongly believe that. But the thing is if you've had forty years of kind of working the soil and agricultural economy that's been fed and poisoned on chemicals, it's going to take at least five years to ten years to turn that around. I mean, I work with women's groups, not in my district, but in the neighboring district of Monaragala, who've been doing that. And they told us it took five years to actually get the soil back into kind of to be nutritious and for them to start growing food without using any kind of chemical fertilizers or pesticides. And these are small uh, plots of land, right? So it, it, it uh, for me, it, it's kind of parallel to what, what would be needed to have a kind of political change in the country or even changing our economic model. It's like turning the soil from, a, you know, being like seeped and kind of used to chemical uh, agriculture to and kind of an organic farming. It's going to be as hard and as slow and as carefully done. It cannot be done overnight.
0: But political commentator Eranda Zaginike, who is a pioneer in the social enterprise sphere in Sri Lanka, and who worked as an advisor for Gotabe Rajapaksha in 2022, sees it through a completely different lens.
5: Now, the organic matter or the fertilizer matter. Now, again, that was, that was a promise that was made in the manifesto. So there's a mandate, just like the, the tax cuts were mandated by 6.9 million people, making it organic. Uh, I mean, sort of organic farming, uh, the, the word can mean a lot of things. You know, we can say sustainable farming. Moving to uh, sustainable farming was mandated by majority of the people of Sri Lanka. And, and there were various measures that were taken towards that. Now, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing particularly in a place like Sri Lanka where we have a chronic uh, kidney disease crisis uh, that's killing um, you know thousands of, of farmers every year. We have dedicated hospitals for dialysis in the agricultural regions in uh, Polonnaruwa and so on. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a human crisis in Sri Lanka, right, which started the late 70s, early 80s, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, uh, we have been dumping a lot of uh, harmful heavy metals uh, through these agrochemicals, uh, and the entire agriculture uh, is now dependent on the the global agriculture uh, chains. When we talk about this issue, nobody says it's a bad thing. They all they all say that that it's a good thing, but then they say it should not have been done all at once. You know, it should not have been banned like that. So, but what a lot of people don't know is that one of the very first meetings that uh, President Gotabe had in his presidency, uh, soon after he was sworn in, was with the Ministry of Agriculture. You know, there was the minister, the secretary, the additional secretaries, the DGs, the directors, the the specialists, and, you know, they were all there. And they were discussing this issue. The decision was to reduce import of fertilizer by 30%. In the first year 2020 and then another 30 percent the next year 2021 so it it, the the original plan was indeed a gradual step-by-step process that was what was agreed uh so uh, in the meantime the local entrepreneurs would manufacture enough organic fertilizer that that was the plan then when the president reviewed the plan i think somewhere in october 2020. It was found out that instead of reducing it by 30%, the importers have imported more more than 10% from the previous year. Right? Instead of reducing it by 30%, they've, incre- they've increased it by some 10%. Can't remember the exact percentage. I, I, I have the the figures with me. So so the plan wasn't working. Right? It was clear by that time the plan wasn't working. And if you really think about it, if you consider yourself as a social entrepreneur but in in the social enterprise world we have this uh, discussion debate about that there are some issues in the world that you simply cannot solve gradually i mean you take you think about climate change what is the biggest challenge what is the biggest criticism when it comes to climate change that there is no political will that it's taking a hell of a long time we just don't have the time we need to make a decision not today if you can remember we're, we're, when we are in school, remember we talked about the ozone layer being getting depleted, right? And we debated about it. We wrote essays about it. And what did the governments do around the world? They didn't say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna reduce the chlorofluorocarbons by 20% this year, another 20% next. year. They didn't do that. They all came together and said, that's it. We are going to stop all CFCs now, right? And that you know, it's 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 a, it's a severe decision, but it had to be taken. Uh, and that's what really caused the, the industries that used chlorofluorocarbons to innovate and change their their products. And because of the decision that was taken back then sort of the early 90s, I think, I think it was just last year or the year before I read that the ozone layer uh, has now uh, been restored to acceptable level. So it takes time, right? So even if we stop importing the harmful agrochemicals, now we are not going to be able to produce healthy foods tomorrow. It'll take another 10, 15, 20 years for the elements to be removed from the system. So and, and on top of that, you know what's what's really somewhat disappointing is that when it comes to these kind of issues, I mean the agriculture is, is, a, is a global industry. It's a multinational company based industry. It's run by a monopoly, really. And and we are sort of victims of that. We don't have a choice there. So when it comes to issues like this, in most cases, uh, what the youth complain is that there is no political will. uh, There's no political support. There's no high level support for these kinds of uh, changes towards sustainability.
0: The pesticide ban and the tax cut would be only a few of the decisions that the Gotabia administration would take to worsen an already unstable economy. But would it be fair to link Sri Lanka's disaster on a single family, the Rajapakshas? I asked Dr. Harini Amarasuriya and the former Human Rights Commissioner Ambika Satkunanathan about what they thought.
1: Well, I think the Rajapaks Rajapaksa brand of politics uh really established something that that's quite vile and quite and extremely corrupt right and all, but uh, but at the same time was also able to mobilize people to support their brand of politics on a, on a very sort of ethno-nationalist agenda. Well,
6: I would say, in a sense, successive governments, because we've always had the twin deficits. We have a massive public sector. We have many of the elements that uh, drove the collapse. But it was definitely the Rajapaksas who, within two years of coming into power, made several uh,
1: disastrous decisions. Right. And that was where they, uh, they were able to establish themselves. And there were characters in the in that in in the family who, like Mahinda Rajapaksa, who were extremely charismatic, and extremely popular, and you know very good at what they did. It was a brand of politics that, in the, finally, became so sort of corrupt. I mean, it, it was due to collapse. There was no way that it could be sustained. In twenty fifteen, you saw people drive them out in one election, but. Um, You know, what followed was equally bad. I think what was unique
6: about that is the Rajapaksas, of course, in Sri Lanka, we have patronage politics, which means many positions are held by people who are not qualified to hold them, but because they are part of or
1: have connections to the regime of the day. Uh, So people forgave the Rajapaksas and brought them back. But then Gautabe proved to be so incompetent that the whole sort of thing collapsed around him. So I do, you know, I mean, the, the Rajapaksas are, are definitely very much, I, I think they symbolize this corrupt, exploitative political culture that we've had for the forever so long. Take the uh, the agriculture policy that Gautabe Rajapaksa unilaterally imposed on the country where overnight he banned fertilizers in his drive to go towards organic green agriculture now in principle we all agree with the with the idea that uh, reducing chemical use in agriculture and shifting to a more sort of green ag- agriculture more organic agriculture is good, good thing. but it's not something you do with like like switching off the lights you don't turn the, you know, turn the chemical agriculture light off and uh, turn on the organic uh, uh, agriculture uh, light on sort of, you know, within 24 hours. That's not how it works. But that's what he did. So that's one example. Then uh, their, fi- their monetary, their fiscal policy, where as soon as uh, he came into power, Gotabe Paksa came into power, he cut back on uh, he uh, he reduced certain taxes, ostensibly to uh, reduce the uh, cost of living of the on people, but that's not what happened. Uh, the the tax cuts actually benefited certain selected financial and economic sectors. The the benefit certainly didn't trickle down uh, to the ordinary citizen. In that sense, for instance, the governor of Central Bank. I the
6: disastrous decision to appoint um, Nivad Cabral as the, the governor. So those were things that the, the Rajapakses did. And the cronyism, the patronage, the refusal to listen to expert advice because there were economists and others who were predicting this, but they chose not to listen to it. They uh, made suggestions which they ignored.
1: Then uh, the the central bank uh, chair, uh, the chair of the uh, central bank, which was a political appointment, artificially maintained the rupee at a particular level, which led to all kinds of uh, financial consequences where um, overseas Sri Lankans who remit money back to the country, simply stopped doing that or stopped using the formal channels to send back their money because it, it simply wasn't in their interest to do so. And this led to a huge collapse of their, it, it contributed to the, the financial crisis because uh, for for so many years, the country's foreign remittances have been the sort of main, uh, main source of foreign income, of, of dollars, of, of, of our foreign reserves. So when that stopped coming in, it created huge problems, uh, which led to the, the, the debt crisis as well. So there were really stupid decisions that this government took against all advice and stubbornly stuck to those decisions, despite anybody who had any sense telling them not to. And despite huge public resistance, they stubbornly stuck to those decisions which precipitated this crisis, as I said, pushed the country over the edge.
6: So I, I would say the root causes are cannot be attributed to the Rajapaksa's, but the collapse definitely and not taking action to prevent the collapse, despite experts warning them and providing suggestions. Definitely, that uh, lies that responsibility lies with the Rajapaksa's
1: but the main reason why we were not able to cope with uh, all of this was because there has been over the years a sort of steady deterioration of the institutions and the systems that could have prevented such a crisis right so that's why i said yes it's it's the definitely decisions taken by the kota biraj paksa regime that created the that pushed the country over the edge but the crisis was a long time coming
0: with short sighted policy poor physical judgments, mixed in with some bad luck. The current crisis was a long time coming. While leaders have been blamed, and sometimes rightfully so, it seems there has been a resounding apathy stretching over their decisions, as though the country were watching a train wreck happen in slow motion. So if Kotabi Rajapaksha was known to make questionable policy moves, how did he come into power? What were the conspiracies surrounding the election? In our next episode, we'll talk more about the worst terror attacks Sri Lanka has seen its civil war, the Easter Sunday attacks, and the unforgettable presidential election that followed with the Rajapaksha brothers coming back into power.